I wish that there was a technical option where we could all agree that we're going to turn off our fossil fuel addiction tomorrow. That's not possible. Now that wealthy nations have agreed to create a fund for developing countries dealing with climate change, what are the next steps? For Thursday, November 24th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. This hour, we'll hear more about a move in Congress to finally honor agreement reached with the Cherokee Nation nearly 200 years ago. I personally believe we need to find a way to honor our treaty obligations with the Cherokee Nation, even though it will be a potentially challenging road. Also, Twitter laid off its entire human rights team. What does that mean for users around the world who depend on the platform for freedom of speech? The demand for this isn't going to go away. The power of a centralized place where people can share information with a really wide audience is hugely important for democracy and for expression. Now the newscast. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The community of Chesapeake, Virginia, is mourning the six people killed in a workplace shooting at a Walmart store Tuesday night. NPR's Jackie Northam reports the youngest victim is a 16-year-old boy. All of the victims worked at Walmart. Among them were Tanika Johnson, custodian Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, and 70-year-old Randy Blevins. They were killed after Andre Bing opened fire at the Walmart store. Authorities are trying to determine what caused Bing to go on a rampage. He had been an employee since 2010 and was armed with a handgun and multiple magazines of ammunition. Bing killed himself. NPR's Jackie Northam reporting. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski has won re-election. The centrist Republican beat Kelly Chewbacca, a Republican backed by former President Donald Trump, and Pat Chesbro, a Democrat. Murkowski was declared the winner after securing more than 50 percent of the vote in Alaska's ranked-choice voting system. In the state's U.S. House race, Democrat Mary Peltola defeated Sarah Palin. Denying the 2020 election results was not a good strategy to win elections in this year's midterms. As NPR's Miles Parks reports, a new NPR analysis finds election deniers underperformed compared to other Republicans on the ballot in key swing states. Election deniers fared especially bad in Secretary of State races. Voting data showed that on average, election deniers running in competitive states for these sorts of positions lagged behind other Republicans at the top of the ticket by 5 to 10 percentage points. Republican candidates who didn't deny the 2020 election results, however, did not see the same level of drop-off. Trey Grayson is the former Republican Secretary of State of Kentucky. Voters sent a pretty loud message about election denialism the voters took that information, processed it, said, we reject those candidates. We're going to reward the candidates who will do their jobs, who will follow the law. Republican Secretary of State of Georgia Brad Raffensperger, for instance, was close to being the state's top vote-getter. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is hosting a second annual Tribal Nation Summit. Asma Khalid reports. The meetings at the Department of Interior are intended to build on the 2021 summit and improve engagements with tribal leaders on critical issues facing Native American communities. Last year, topics included COVID, economic development, and public safety. Former President Barack Obama had made a tradition of hosting these annual tribal gatherings, but they were discontinued under his successor, former President Donald Trump. This White House has said President Biden is committed to holding these summits every year. The Biden administration sees this summit as a way for tribal leaders to engage directly with high-level White House officials. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. It's NPR. 
NASA says the delayed launch of a cargo capsule means the crew aboard the International Space Station will be getting a break today and tomorrow. NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce says the Americans aboard the ISS will have time to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. NASA currently has three astronauts living on board the orbiting outpost, along with an astronaut from Japan and three Russian cosmonauts. In a message broadcast by NASA earlier this week, astronaut Josh Cassida said that he and his colleagues were expecting to work on Thanksgiving. But I think we'll still have some time to catch some football and uh, eat some great Thanksgiving fare. It turns out they have more time to relax than he thought. Bad weather delayed the launch of a cargo spacecraft that was supposed to arrive at the station on Wednesday. A NASA spokesperson says that means the crew will be off duty through Friday. In addition to watching football, they can arrange to talk with loved ones back on Earth. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. Ford Motor Company is recalling 634,000 SUVs. The recall covers some Broncos, Sport and Escapes from the 2020 through 2023 model years. Ford says a cracked fuel injector can start fires. This Thanksgiving holiday, the price of gas in the U.S. is falling. That's according to AAA. The national average for regular today is close to 3.59. That's down 13 cents from a week ago. Leading up to Thanksgiving, AAA reported that the, le- the, the least expensive gas is in Texas, Georgia, and Mississippi. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Well, in sports, you can work off your turkey, potatoes, and pie from the couch tonight watching the Patriots take on the Vikings in Minnesota at 820. The Pats go into the game in third place in the AFC East with a 6-4 and four record. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, Black Friday is looking a bit gloomy. It'll be cloudy with rain moving in by afternoon. We'll see a high around 52. And Saturday will be sunny with temps right around 50 or just below. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com slash podcasts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Earlier this year, a third of Pakistan was underwater. Deadly floods killed some 1,700 people and affected more than 30 million. Climate change helped drive that devastation. Well, now in a historic first, a fund will help compensate countries for that sort of damage. Negotiators at the UN Climate Conference agreed in the final hours that the world's richest countries, which are most responsible for global warming, will pay into a pot of money to help poorer countries deal with climate disasters. Pakistan led the bloc of developing countries, known as the G77, at those negotiations. And Pakistan's Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zardari joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How big a victory is this agreement for you? Uh, I think that this is, this is a big victory, not for any one individual or one country, but this is a big victory uh, for all of those who've suffered from the devastation of climate change. And it's something that uh, has been a long-standing demand to allow countries uh, who suffer exorbitantly as a result from climate change, but didn't necessarily uh, contribute as much to the position we find ourselves in, um, for them to have an opportunity. There's still a lot to be decided. Tell us what the most immediate questions are and what the timeline is to answer them. The questions are, uh, who's going to contribute to the fund? How are we going to come up with the international financial 
mechanisms and who, who we gonna, are we going to get it to those who need it the most. Our time frame is the next COP hosted uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, and I think that that's sort of a good target for everyone to achieve. In the past, countries have failed to keep similar promises. Are you worried that they won't follow through this time? So as the chair of uh, G77 uh, plus China, obviously many, many countries uh, are worried about our inability uh, in the past to live up to some of our con commitments. And I think that is why it was so important to have the language on the fund. And I think it does sort of, it goes a long way to show that, uh, that people are committed to this. But ultimately, it's not binding, right? There's no consequences if developed countries don't follow through. You're kind of taking it on faith. Well, um, I think that there, the sort of the consequences is for our planet as an for all of us, not just for the global north, but also for the global south, not just for the developed world, uh, but also for the developing world. And being in the position of uh, chair of G77 uh, plus China, it was all the more important for us having gone through this tragedy, that this had to get done. You've referred to G77 plus China, which is the group of developing nations. Uh, China is currently the world's largest emitter, although the UN still considers it a developing country, and China has opposed paying into the fund. Do you think they should contribute? We've got a commitment to establish uh, a fund uh, and financial arrangements to address loss and damage, and a timeline attached to that for us to work out the details. I look forward to working with all our partners uh, within uh, G77 uh, and uh, the UAE, uh, which will be hosting uh, the next COP. And you're uh, not going to, to ensure... express an opinion of whether or not China should pay into well, no, it. No, it's not about, no, 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 no. It's not about, it's not about, not, about who should or who should not pay into it. We all have to do our part to combat climate change as far as China is concerned. Uh, I recently came back from there and they're leading the way as far as reforestation, green energy, etc. But we all have to work together to collectively uh, survive uh, and combat uh, these challenges without necessarily, you know, sort of finger wagging with one side or the other that, you know, you're doing too much, you're not doing enough. Let's imagine that this does get fully funded. There is still inevitably going to be more need than there will be money. So who do you think should get first priority? How should decisions be made about where the money is spent? Oh, that's a very, I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think that there'd be a difficult, uh, everybody faces uh, their own challenge. I don't think there's going to be a fund big enough that will cover every country. It's, it's not sort of a future problem, it's now because it's not only Pakistan uh, that has been damaged, damaged just this year. In fact, Pakistan was first damaged by a historic uh, heat waves, forest fires, and a massive drought, and then followed by this, this, this flooding that you see. So a fund available can, you know, contribute in the way it will. But if I had the space to be able to go to the World Bank, to the IMF, uh, to maybe a climate bank, uh, to other institutions where I would take my own loans at reasonable rates, given the fact that I'm dealing with sort of a, a climate catastrophe, that would allow me access to the finances I need to get my own people back on their own feet, uh, and be able to counter the various challenges that we face. Despite the fact that this loss and damage fund was established, negotiators at the meeting still could not agree to phase out fossil fuels. And so big picture, mm. is, isn't the world still on an unsustainable track? So the, the pictures that the climate scientists are painting are extremely uh, devastating. Uh, and for us, that, that picture became in a reality became reality for us. This is something that has an urgency uh, for now. I wish that there was a technical option where we could all agree that we're going to turn off our 
fossil fuel addiction tomorrow. That's not possible. I think it's it's better that we achieved uh, a practical consensus about something uh, that we can do and can achieve, rather than agreeing to something that we were, would be unable to achieve as of now. Pakistan's Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. The protests in Iran right now, last year's farmer demonstrations in India, or the uprisings known as the Arab Spring, all relied on the exercise of free speech online, including on Twitter. Until recently, the company had a team dedicated to protecting the free speech and privacy rights of users around the world. But Elon Musk has now laid off Twitter's entire human rights team. So where does that leave users outside of the U.S. who've relied on Twitter to organize social and political movements? Alexandra Givens is president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So your organization serves on Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, which is an independent advisory group that engaged with Twitter on human rights. What do you think it means that the entire human rights team at Twitter is suddenly gone? It sends a devastating message about the priorities of Elon Musk and the new leadership going forward. That team was incredibly important for combating hateful speech, incitement to violence, manipulation in conflict zones. And the idea that that does not require staffing anymore, again, is a really dangerous precedent. Well, Elon Musk says it's not so much defunding as it is a shift to AI. Is this work that can be done by automation? No, and that's a really important misperception to try and address. Of course, AI plays a very important role in content moderation. The sheer volume means that people do need to rely on tools for it. But the idea that you can do that without very close human supervision is just a fallacy. Think of some of the examples that you can think of, right? So ethnic violence in Ethiopia, that was an area where the Twitter human rights team was very focused. When you look at some of the coded language involved in some of those incitement episodes, you know, there are things like ethnic slurs that if you do a literal translation to English, the word is musketeer. Right? How do you train a tool to know what those particular trigger words will be in a particular area? It's very context specific. Although it's and interesting that, that you give the example of languages that AI might not be familiar with, because in many cases, Twitter and other social media platforms were faulted for not having humans who spoke those languages. And so hate speech went unchecked. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we were one of the groups that would push back on this. So um, this isn't to say that life was always perfect on the platform before. But they needed to do more, not do less. You need humans that understand the context in these different settings and more resources devoted to this type of work, not less. Has Elon Musk talked about where he sees global Twitter usage and human rights in the priorities that he's setting for the company? I have not seen a thoughtful conversation about this at all. You know, he had this meeting that he vaunted a couple weeks ago with civil rights leaders in the United States. And at the time, it was covered as an effort to appease advertisers to say that he was going to respond to hate speech and harassment on the platform. That's a nice first step. Um, he hasn't really followed up with that since. But if you look at who was in the room for that conversation, hugely important organizations in the United States focused on civil rights. The NAACP was there, Color of Change, Anti-Defamation League. But it was a decidedly U.S. focus. And again, I think that sends a terrible message about how they are thinking about the order of priorities when we know there are so many other human rights concerns around the world. When you look at the last decade or so of Twitter's existence, there are these examples that we offered of Twitter being used as a platform for organizing and for democracy and for free speech and human rights. There are also a lot of examples of hate speech flourishing on Twitter. When you look at the balance, which do you think has more often been the case? 
I don't know if you can call it by percentage, but what I will say is that the company was trying. There were important moments where they took a stand to defend the rights of users to spread important messages online and to push back on instances of government repression or authoritarian efforts. One of the examples that I think is, is useful to point to is in India, where the government pressured Twitter significantly to block accounts that criticized the government in power. And the company pushed back and ultimately even filed a lawsuit to do so. Now we look at how that team is being staffed. Musk fired 90% of the 200 people in India at, at Twitter. They now have 12 people staffing Twitter in India. That's a country with over 1.3 billion people and over 100 languages being spoken. So even if it wasn't great before, the lack of resources now, I think, again, is devastating. There's a lot of speculation about whether Twitter will survive uh, if it were to disappear. Do you see an alternative platform that people around the world are likely to gravitate to for the kinds of organizing that we've been talking about? So we've seen already a big shift in users going over to Mastodon and what is sometimes called the Fediverse. These are different decentralized platforms that can intercommunicate the same way that I can text you no matter which cell phone company you're using. So I think there's an important glimmer of hope there. At the same time, even the people that run many of those services are saying they're overwhelmed by the sudden uptick. They have a lot of learning and growing to do to resource content moderation and all of the concerns that Twitter had in the past. Um, the demand for this isn't going to go away. The power of a centralized place where people can share information with a really wide audience is hugely important for democracy and for expression. That was Alexandra Givens, president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Twitter, which no longer has a communications department, has not responded to our request for comment, nor has an attorney for Elon Musk. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, Mary Louise Kelly talks with country music artists Tanya Tucker and Brandi Carlisle about working together and about their new documentary. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston, featuring a festive holiday marketplace for artisan-made gifts, Fridays and Saturdays through the holidays, downtownboston.org, and Tapas 529 in Melrose, Spanish and Mediterranean small plates with a modern twist, dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends, private parties welcome. Thanks for including 90.9 WBUR in your Thanksgiving weekend. When you want to check in or need a break, we'll be here with the news and more. Listen anytime on the radio and anywhere on the WBUR app. Uh, WBUR app, excuse me, and happy Thanksgiving. And it looks like the skies will get cloudy for this Thanksgiving night. We'll have a low around 38 degrees and clouds will take over and bring rain tomorrow afternoon. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at mos.org. In business news, the holiday shopping season in Massachusetts kicks off in earnest tomorrow with Black Friday. The Retailers Association of Massachusetts forecasts stores in the state will see a 10% increase in revenue this holiday season compared to last. That's more than the typical year-over-year -year growth in holiday sales. But retailers will be competing with the rate of inflation, which is nearly 8%. That's increased the cost for inventory, staffing, rent, and energy. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe. 
a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at VIX.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. All right, pull up a chair, get comfortable, because you're going to want to settle in and listen to these next two guests. I'm Tanya Denise Tucker. Uh, And what else would you want to know? You're a country music singer. I'm a singer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, meet the woman you just heard helping her out there. I'm Brandi Carlisle. I'm also a singer, songwriter, producer, and a good friend of... The great Tanya Mother Tucker. <laughs> well, oh, that's, now that's an honor right there. Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle have 39 Grammy nominations, eight Grammy wins between them. But they had never met until they decided to make a record together and then a movie about making that record. The result is The Return of Tanya Tucker. They dropped by our New York studios recently to talk about it, including the moment in 2019 that Brandy first reached Tanya on the phone. Six it was times. the day I woke the up day. and I was nominated for all those Grammys for the first time in my life. Yeah. That was the day I met you. Brandy Carlisle might have just been nominated for six Grammys, but Tanya Tucker had never heard of her. I really didn't know. I never knew her music, so I'm an idiot. But my kids knew who she was. Okay. Mom, oh my God, Brandy Carlisle? But anyway, so the phone rings. So I answered and and uh, and uh, she, just, she just went to talking and... Uh, I was sold. I was like, Miss Tucker, I have got a plan. <laughs> yeah, I was sold by the time I got done talking. Uh, I'm not sure if I was sold. No, I was sold. She was kind of blown away, you know. Yeah. And we had been trying to talk her into coming out. She wasn't sure how serious we were. You know, her kids knew who I was, yeah. but not because I was famous, because I had been calling them. Ah, I had been circling right. the wagons, and I was saying, I really believe this is a moment of reckoning that. for country music. Here's the background to why a new Tanya Tucker album seemed like a moment of reckoning. Tanya dropped her first big hit 50 years ago when she was 13 years old. That's Delta Dawn, her first hit from 1972. By the time she was 15, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Brandy Carlisle grew up listening to her. She draws a direct line between what Tanya was doing with her voice in the 1970s and what she, Brandy, does with hers today. I climbed across the mountain tops, swam all across the ocean across I don't like compartmentalizing genre in terms of gender. But if you think about this, there, there's been a whole lane in sort of female-fronted country music that's like got this kind of like, like the chicks are like this, kind of, kind of sassy, kind of rebellious with a wide gate. They stand there, they hold their ground. You've got Miranda Lambert doing this. You've got several generations of women influenced by like a toughness that comes from like a rural sensibility that's different than your typical Southern belle. It's not feminine. It's something else. And... I just think that Tanya is the architect of that um, in the same way that uh, Johnny Cash was the architect of the concept of his lament and the man in black and, and his 
stoicism and steadiness and music was indelible. And Tanya's is indelible, too. We just so happen to be lucky enough that she's young. She was young when she started. She's young now. We have her here. Let's stop screwing around. Let's make sure we get out and see her play because she's she built us. Well, that's awfully nice of her to say so, but it was, I mean, unintentional. I was just trying to, you know, to, trying to get by and survive and, and do the only thing I knew how to do. Well, you were so young, you Sometimes know, when I you started. About that. And unfortunately, this is what we were talking about. It also means that all your peers, all your friends are so much older than you that yeah. you're having to say goodbye. That's what I was leading up to, and that's what our next single is about. Yeah. Oh, give me a preview. Um... <clears throat> Um, it's called Ready As I'll Never Be. I'm singing it all the way over here. Now I'm uh... Tanya writes songs in like one-liners. And it's and they're amazing when she'll drop this line on you and it'll just blow your mind. And we had just lost John Prine to COVID. And then yes. Billy Joe Shaver passed yes. away. Yes, Billy Joe Shaver, that was tough. Yeah. And my heroes, you know. Yeah. And people that were my friends went from being my heroes to being my friends and back to being heroes again. So, so I go up to have dinner with her in Nashville the night Billy Joe Shaver died. And, yes. and we were walking up the stairs and I said, they don't want to bring it up, but I said, Tan, Tanya, I'm, I'm sorry about Billy Joe. I know how much he loved him. And she goes, she's out, honey. She goes, that's the thing about, you know, they're all going to get their wings before I do, yeah. you know, God willing. And then she looks at me with that Tanya look, and she goes, ready as I'll never be. <laughs> I guess I'm ready. Ready as I'll never be. Oh, my, what an amazing sentiment. How true is that? That because she's so much younger, that these icons are going to always go sooner, you know, and it's God's going to keep you here. But That's the difference means. between her and what I've had before is that, you know, an idea is just an idea until you put it into action. She takes it and she goes with it and she, she, don't, she don't stop. So this brings me, I want to spend a little time on the song that's at the heart of the film and yes. of y'all's collaboration, Bring My Flowers Now. That starts something like this? Tell us how it started. The same way. Same thing. I had the chorus for a long time. Yeah. Long, long, long time. Uh, and I was leaving Nashville, going to Austin for Christmas. But on the way, I always call Loretta. When I go, go, go right by where the turnoff is to her, her ranch. Loretta Lynn, yeah. We talked, and I sang her that chorus for some reason. I don't know why I do things. But, and then I guess I sang it to you. Yeah, and you sang her that chorus, and she wanted to write it. And I, as soon as I heard you say it, you know, Bring my flowers yeah. now while I'm living, because I don't want to need your love when I'm gone. Don't spend time, tears, or money on my old breathless body. On my old breathless body. If your heart is in them flowers, bring them home. Bring My Flowers Now won Best Country Song of the Year at the 2020 Grammys. It is Tanya's voice, Tanya's story. Brandy shared the Grammy with her as co-songwriter. I wrote it down for you so you could be your own your own voice, but I know those are your feelings. So you wrote that song, you know, even if I held the pen. Well, you know, we all do things differently, but she gets me, and um, and I'm I'm so thankful for her uh, because 
uh, she's the only one that's really gotten me and has done something about it, you know. And uh, uh, we're talking about what she, you talking about what she gets out of it. She ain't getting no money. I guarantee you, she's putting her in a hole. And I said, why not, Brandy? She goes, because I want people to know I'm serious. Yeah, it's true. Brandy Carlisle and Tanya Tucker. Elsewhere in the program, our conversation continues when we hear about that time Tanya came to stay with Brandy. She makes the best Wables Rancheros I've ever had. Oh, yeah, I made that for you. That, that was, was with awesome. the shrimp and stuff like that. I don't know what, it was just awesome. I wake up in the morning, she'd be standing there in her boxers cooking yeah. bacon with a fork. Yeah, those little muffins you made, those are <laughs> so great. I got my knee on the wheel and I'm feeling free With my hobnail on the gas just crossed over the county line, trying to make it up to Wild Rose Pass. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, the U.S. House considers whether to make good on an 1836 treaty and create a new delegate seat for the Cherokee Nation. Tonight's looking cloudy with a low around 38 degrees. Tomorrow's clouds will stick around and then rain will arrive by about midday or not long after. The high will be around 53 degrees. Saturday, temps will approach 50 under sunny skies. And then Sunday, sun will give over to rain in the afternoon. It'll be a little warmer with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, it is 47 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Climate change is real, of course, but it's good fodder for science fiction, too. People finding sources of resilience among themselves and and building a new home with thousands of people unfamiliar to them. I'm Kai Rizdal. What humans do after fictional climate destruction? That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Officials in Chesapeake, Virginia, are still trying to determine the motive between the mass shooting at a Walmart store that left six people dead on Tuesday. Reporter William One from The Washington Post has been following the developments. The shooter, you know, he is a supervisor at that Walmart and a team lead is what they call it. And so they describe him just walking into that break room um, where they are all kind of gathered making plans for the the weekend and uh, just started shooting. William One of the Washington Post speaking to NPR this morning. Authorities say the shooter, an employee of the store, later turned the gun on himself. Two people who were wounded in the shooting remain hospitalized and are said to be in critical condition. A record number of people are expected to shop this holiday weekend. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports the retail trade group is predicting that shoppers will spend more this season than they did last year. Data from the National Retail Federation suggests almost two-thirds of the country's adult population plan to shop this weekend, with Black Friday being the most popular day, followed by Cyber Monday. Overall, the NRF expects holiday spending to grow between 6 and 8 percent this year. 
That's more than an average year, even on top of last year's crazy shopping frenzy. Inflation is certainly at play, accounting for a large chunk of the spending increase. Still, experts who track prices say some of the goods have already started to see big discounts. That includes electronics, computers, TVs, toys, and clothes. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. President Biden is spending the Thanksgiving holiday in Nantucket. Earlier today, he and the First Lady delivered pumpkin pies to Massachusetts firefighters. Stocks are closed on Wall Street today. Trading resumes tomorrow. This is NPR News in Washington. An outbreak of dengue fever in Sudan has claimed more than two dozen lives. Reporter Michael Koloki says the virus is continuing to spread across the Northeast African country. According to health officials, at least 26 people have died from the ongoing dengue fever outbreak in Sudan. At least half of the deaths were recorded in the region of southern Kordofan, which is one of the areas where the outbreak was first reported in early November. So far, there have been 460 confirmed cases of the disease and over 3,000 suspected cases. Officials have expressed concern about the extent to which the disease has spread. Half of the country's 18 states have already reported cases. A previous outbreak linked to five deaths occurred in Sudan in 2019. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. Lawmakers in France have adopted legislation that solidifies abortion rights in the country's constitution. The measure was approved today by the National Assembly. It now needs a majority in the upper house of parliament, the Senate, and then in a nationwide referendum. France legalized abortion back in 1975, but there is nothing in the Constitution that would guarantee the right to have the procedure. The measure was prompted by the rollback of abortion rights in the United States. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Lynn Jolliker. Happy Thanksgiving. In sports, the Patriots take on the Vikings in Minnesota tonight at 820. The Pats are 6-4, and four, and they're in third place in the AFC East. And the forecast tonight is looking cloudy with a low around 38 degrees. Tomorrow, the clouds will stick around and then rain will arrive by about midday or not long after. The high will be around 53. Saturday, temps will approach 50 under sunny skies. Sunday, sun will give over to rain in the afternoon. It'll be a little warmer with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's a holiday of sorts in Brazil today, too. Not officially, but kids got out of school early, some stores and government offices closed. The occasion? The Brazilian national soccer team's first match in the World Cup. They beat Serbia 2 to nothing. NPR's Kerry Khan watched the game along with lots of fans at a bar on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. Carrie, tough assignment. Paint a picture for us. What was it like at this bar during the game? It was so tense in that first half, Ari. I was really excited to come and have some fun at the beach. You almost couldn't drink your Kyperinha. It was so tense. <laughs> it was. But that first half was so tense, there was no cheering. And then the first goal. It was like this collective cathartic release. You should have seen the face of our NPR producer here, Valdemar Gio. He was finally smiling. It was great. <laughs> well, I, tell us about the fans. Who did you talk to there? Um, I, I spoke to a young uh, man. He was 19-year-old, Alexandra Magalhães. He was so excited with his friends on the Grand Walkway along Copacabana Beach. Ah, muito feliz, muito feliz mesmo. Por, é, primeira vez, he's é, saying, I'm so happy, I'm so happy. He said this is the first World Cup he's really been into, and he's just sure that Brazil will win it all. Okay, beyond that bar, tell us about what it sounds like amounted to a national holiday in Brazil today. Well, everyone is watching here, and it's not an official holiday, like you said, but schools are let kids out early, and I've been seeing signs for days leading up to the World Cup with special hours when every time Brazil plays, shops are closed, and then they will reopen 20 minutes after the end of the game mm. with extra time. You know, you never know exactly when the game will end. The beach that I'm sitting on right now is um, the along the boulevard is jam-packed, but there's no one on the sand. There's no one in the water the bars are just packed and there's a if you could hear the music just blaring behind me yeah i hear FIFA that has set up <laughs> FIFA has set up a fan fest here and there's just a concert going on people are celebrating so what are brazil's chances in the world cup are they likely to go all the way they are one of the favorites to win. A lot of people are saying that right now in the rankings. They are five-time World Cup winners. This is a record, and they're going for what's called a hexa, a sixth win. They have a really strong team this year with an amazing offense with huge names like Neymar and uh, Richardson. He's the one who scored both of the goals today. They all are very strong forwards, and they all play in the European leagues. If someone were to get in injured, Brazil has a long, deep bench that they can go to. They they have three really strong goalies, and people are pointing to one weakness. They have a 39-year-old uh, middle back, but um, they just say this is their World Cup to lose. And just briefly, in our last 30 seconds or so, you've been reporting on some controversy over the yellow national soccer jersey that was associated with Jair Bolsonaro, who recently lost his re-election bid. Are, are people wearing that jersey today? Everybody here was wearing it. It seems to be that everybody's rallying around the team, and it, it looks like it's been a, it was a very bruising election here. The country was politically divided, but it seems like they will unite around the World Cup, especially if Brazil wins. All right, get back to the beach. NPR's Kerry Kahn in Rio <laughs> de Janeiro. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. hundred eighty six years ago, the u s government made a deal with the Cherokee Nation in exchange for its land. The government agreed to provide the tribe a seat in Congress. The treaty was ratified, but its terms were never fully honored. 
NPR political correspondent Susan Davis reports that some in Congress want to finally make good on that deal. The Treaty of Nuichota was first ratified by the Senate in 1836. It gave the Cherokee people $5 million and new land west of the Mississippi River in exchange for their 7 million acres of ancestral land in the southeast. It was this treaty that led to the infamous Trail of Tears, where resistant members of the tribe were forcibly removed off that land, causing thousands of deaths along the way. America's history with the indigenous people that are native to this land um, is atrocious. That's Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern, who recently led the first ever congressional hearing to focus on a lesser known provision in that treaty, the one that also promised the tribe a delegate seat in the U.S. Congress as part of the deal for their land. I personally believe we need to find a way to honor our treaty obligations with the Cherokee Nation, even though it will be a potentially challenging road. Cherokee Nation Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. is leading the lobbying effort for Congress to fulfill its obligation without any more delay. No barrier, constitutional or otherwise, prevents this. But how to seat a tribal nation delegate in Congress is a question without much historical precedent to fall back on. Delegates, unlike representatives, do not get to vote on bills on the House floor, but they can participate in committees and give floor speeches. There are currently six such non-voting members of the House, representing places like the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Those delegates were all established by laws passed by Congress and signed by the president. Hoskins says that is not necessary in this case because the Senate and the president already acted nearly two centuries ago. This would render the treaty right in Article 7 of our treaty meaningless. The House could change the rules that govern the chamber, which Hoskins supports, and seat a Cherokee Nation delegate by simple majority vote. But that is an impermanent solution because it would need to be reapproved every two years at the start of each new Congress. The Cherokee Nation has already appointed its chosen delegate, Kimberly Teehee, who was unanimously approved by the Cherokee Council, not directly elected by the people, which all other House representatives and delegates must be under the United States Constitution. Hoskins said appointing a delegate in this manner is consistent with the Cherokee Constitution. In other words, none of your business, Congress. So in the first response is deference to the Cherokee Nation's sovereign act of determining how the delegate is selected. Lawmakers also questioned whether seating a Cherokee Nation delegate would open the door to similar requests by other tribal nations. Already, the chief of the Choctaw Nation has written Congress in support of the Cherokee Nation's request and asking for one of their own based on an unrelated treaty. The top Republican on the committee, Tom Cole of Oklahoma, wanted to know the answer to the simple question, what took them so long? Hoskins said it has taken the Cherokee Nation nearly these two centuries to regain its footing from the Trail of Tears and the conflicts that followed in the decades since with the U.S. government. And so we are now, I think, in a position where we can, as a practical matter, assert this right, whereas my predecessors in the two centuries before, frankly, we were just trying to hang on to our way of life and rebuild. So that's the explanation. Control of the House will flip in January, and it's unclear what the new Republican majority will do on this. Cole is poised to become the top Republican on the Rules Committee. He said he'd like to finally resolve it. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's not as if something that happened 150 years, 170 years ago, can't be addressed and corrected now. Cole is a member of the Chickasaw Nation and the longest-serving Native American in Congress. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The reverberations of the war in Ukraine have been felt all over the world. Rising food and fuel prices have impacted many beyond the borders of Ukraine itself, including in rural parts of Africa, as Villa Marx reports from Chad. It's early morning, and in the dirt courtyard outside Yusuf Ibrahim Abderrahman's home, the children are crowding together for their first and final meal of the day. A morsel of fried bread dipped in sweetened green tea, eaten at speed. Yusuf is father to nine, grandfather to several more. If you earn a living day by day, he says, you eat whatever you get. Sometimes you don't get anything to eat for a day. Sometimes you're able to buy food for the whole day, sometimes for half a day. That's how it goes. What, I ask, are the consequences for his young children? When it comes to the kids, he says, you have to make do. What little food you have, you put it aside for them. You forget about yourself. When there's enough food, you eat together. Otherwise, you just give it to them. Food prices in this small town called Musuru jumped this year, as they did right across the African nation of Chad. For those already accustomed to acute shortage, a confounding consequence of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Everything is more expensive, says Alhaj Adun Berkadai, who heads the local chamber of commerce. Pasta, flour, rice, millet, everything's more expensive. In the past, prices increased after the rainy season. But these past few months, the Ukraine-Russia conflict made everything expensive. Berkadai shows me several of his storerooms that would usually be filled with flour or sugar, but now, thanks to the conflict in Ukraine, stand completely empty. In this landlocked country, most food arrives via the Sahara, but high fuel prices have made the 15-day truck journey across the desert far less affordable. The knock-on effects are felt at the town's only bakery, where Mohammed Tahir oversees daily bread deliveries, stacking loaves onto trucks and small motorbikes. It's not profitable for the bakery now, he says. We're continuing to function just to avoid closing down. The company's not making any profit. Beyond the town, in villages like Chabaga, malnutrition strikes frequently. It's frightening effects measured in the arms and legs of babies at this food distribution center. Here, families rely increasingly on infrequent handouts from the United Nations World Food Programme. The UN says this year in Chad, 1.3 million children lack sufficient food. Two in every five suffer from stunted growth, and price increases help push those numbers even higher. Sadiq Mohamed Rosi oversees the food dispersal. It's been worsening since 2010, he says. But now, with the situation in Ukraine, it's getting even worse. Each harvest, the crisis is increasing. The number of malnourished children is increasing. So families are forced to wait and hope for harvests that yield less and less each year, for rations that are never enough, and now for a distant war to end. Then NPR News, I'm Willem Marx in Chabaga, Chad.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 5 here on All Things Considered, different ideas on how states should spend billions of dollars from settlements with opioid companies and concerns over Ukraine's forests, as some in that country are cutting them down to heat their homes this winter in the midst of war. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus, tomorrow through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow's looking a bit gloomy. It'll be cloudy with rain moving in by afternoon. We'll see a high around 52. Saturday will be sunny with temps right around 50 or just below. Sunday, rain will likely move in again in the afternoon and we'll have temperatures in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story, live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It can be hard to get a word in edgeways when you try to interview Tanya Tucker and Brandi Carlisle together. They are so busy telling stories, laughing, singing. You know, I don't mind keeping pictures. (laughs) So I don't uh, wear those shoes no more. That's it. Go, girl. Brandy Carlisle and Tanya Tucker are queens of American music, and now they are making it together. In the first part of this conversation, we talked about the album they came together to make, which won Best Country Album at the Grammys in 2020. Now we're going to hear about the friendship that developed during that collaboration. One of the things she said to me one time, she said, Tanya, T, we're just magic together. That's what we are. And I thought that was just like, wow. I think we are. I yeah, do. Well, I know we are now. We're an unlikely pair. <laughs> you think it now, I, that means I know it now. These two women are different generations. Brandy Carlisle is 41 to Tanya Tucker's 64. And when they first met three years ago, Brandy's star was rising. For Tanya, it had been 25 years since her last Grammy nomination. People who could sing you every word of a Dolly Parton song might have struggled to name a Tanya Tucker song. Brandy told me she started wondering if Tanya was ripe for a comeback, as she was chatting one day with her producer, Shooter Jennings. He heard something in my voice, and he made a comment. I said, oh, you know, she's my hero. I've loved Tanya Tucker since I was a little girl. I was like, "What? what is she up to? And he goes, you know, she's still singing great. It was true. Long story short, Brandy went to meet Tanya and helped to write and produce that Grammy-winning album. They made a film together about the process called The Return of Tanya Tucker, which got me to wondering, after all the years out of the spotlight, 
How did Tanya feel about a return? Was there ever a moment, Tanya, where you wondered, do I still do I still have it? Like, do I have another album in me? Every day. She still does. I mean, every time I, before I step on a, a stage, I have that thought, you know. Because every show is different. There's bad challenges to get them off their, especially when they're a little older crowd, to get them on their, off their seats and on their feet. Uh, but it's always uh, a thing where I think, oh, my just don't think I'm probably going to, I don't think I'm going to be good enough. I got to do something, mm-hmm. you know, because there's always, when you can't sing, you got to dance, you know. <laughs> and I have had to learn how to dance. <clears throat> but I said, you know, <laughs> I said, so Cowboy asked me if, he, if I wanted to dance. I said, I'll dance with you if I can lead. <laughs> Here's a taste of what these two are cooking up together. This is Tanya, her new single co-written with Brandy. It's called Ready As I'll Never Be. And watching doves fly sooner than me. I guess I'm ready, ready as I'll never be. That voice. You don't sing like that unless you have seen some stuff on this earth. And listening, I wanted to put the same question to Brandy Carlisle that you already heard me ask Tanya. Did Brandy ever ask whether her friend wanted another round of fame and all the pressure that comes with it? I checked in regularly with myself, with her, about whether she shared our desire for her to regain this recognition or whether or not it was bordering on exploitive. There were days that she'd wake up and she wouldn't come out of her bus and I'd go, I need to check in. I need to make sure this is right and that this isn't me forcing a desire that I have for this person, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah I understand that. But, but when we were recording, so what are you talking about? Yeah. But when the lights go down, when your shoulders go back and you become Tanny Tucker, it becomes so clear to me that fundamentally that is that is what you love. That's who you are. Yeah, and Willie, I think, said it best. The only time I'm free and nobody can tell me what to do or say I like that outfit or I don't like that or give their opinion is when I'm on stage. So maybe that's a little bit about what I do. I feel that way too. Yeah. I feel really safe up on stage. I feel like... That's where I'm the most understood. Exactly. Whereas what makes Brandy Carlisle nervous? Well, that would be having Tanya Tucker come visit. I was worried that my house wouldn't be, like, fancy enough for her, you know, because she's a contradiction. She's a contradiction. Like, on one hand, she, like, rides rodeo, and she's totally rugged. Cutting horses, horses, sorry. Mm -hmm. But on the other other hand, like, she's freaking fancy. She's country music royalty, you know? So I was like, I don't know if my house is fancy enough for Tanya Tucker. But... She'll understand, like, I, you know, I've lived in this log cabin my whole adult life, and she'll love it because I love it, you know. So I'm waiting for her to come out, and she's she's calling me for directions, which is down a long, long dirt road, and she's from on the, the phone. airport. I'm coming from the airport. Yeah, with an Uber driver, yeah. and she goes, "Oh, baby, <laughs> he's stuck. I, stuck. I gotta call you back. I'm gonna get us out of this." She gets on the phone with me, kicks the Uber driver out of the yeah, seat, I'll gets in the truck. Pulls, the, pulls his vehicle out of the mud and then drives the rest of the way to my house with That's mud right. all over her tracksuit and shows up. And That's I was like, funny. yeah, I think I'm fancy enough for Tanya Tucker. <laughs> yeah, but I loved her house. And yeah. she and she makes the best Wables Rancheros I've ever had. Oh, yeah, I made that for you. That, that was, was with awesome. the shrimp and stuff like that. I don't know what. It was just awesome. I'd wake up in the morning. She'd be standing there in her boxers cooking yeah. bacon with a fork. Yeah, those little muffins you made. Those are <laughs> so great. See what I mean about how it's hard to get a word in edgeways? But... I was curious about one more thing. Talk to me, both of you, about timing. It's everything. (laughs) 
Tanja Tucker dropped her first country hit when she was 13 years old. 13. Brandy Carlisle didn't make it big, like really big, until her late 30s. And I had read a recent interview where she attributed her success in part to the fact that it came when it did. Because, you know, you only have so many shots anymore. And if you're not ready for that, like musically ready, emotionally ready, physically ready, and just mentally ready to like seize that moment and go, this is my shot. I'm going to do this. I don't think you can do that in your 20s on purpose. But you know, when it comes to like making it as a term, yeah, people like me, and I'm really interested in what oh, you no, think I'm about this like, too. When, when, when's that going to happen? <laughs> yeah. I don't know when that happens. Well, quite the opposite for me. Way. I always felt like I had made it, even when I won a karaoke contest. So I recognize they're all different levels of, of success. You know, it all comes from inside. Making it your idea about it, I what think, counts. changes yeah? as you go along. What do you, you know? think? Well, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. But I think the next person that says I'm an icon or a legend or the superstar, I'm going to punch them out. You don't I like said, that? Oh, no, because I, I, I'm looking, I'm trying to pack. Where's my, okay, uh, if they could only see me now, yeah, they wouldn't call me such a, an icon or yeah. anything. When so, you're washing your hair in a gas oh, station not, sink. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> no, we still all do that. But you getting a couple ready. of Grammys. Yeah. In your 60s, that must feel like, hey, I made it. Yeah, winning Grammys in your 60s. But I was so comfortable. I got so comfortable with losing that, you know, I was happy with that. No pressure, you know, but winning. It's like, okay, now we we got to get, the next one's got to be better, you know. Yeah. It's just constant. Next one is better. better, better, better. How how far can you go? Uh, You know, but I got a long, I got a long way to go, let me tell you. Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle, singers, songwriters, friends. Their movie, The Return of Tanya Tucker, is in theaters now. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having us. What a kick. (laughs) It's time to sing. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from Total Wine & More where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have mostly cloudy skies tonight and temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, the clouds will stick around. We'll have a chance of rain for much of the day and a high around 52 degrees. Saturday, temps will approach 50 degrees under sunny skies. Sunday, we should have sunshine to start the day, then a chance of rain in the afternoon, possibly with some gusty winds. The high will be in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston at 5 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 
and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. starting to get their first payments from that big settlement this summer and continuing through this fall. Billions of dollars are being dispersed from the opioid settlement. How will states spend the money and will people affected by addiction have any say in it? For Thursday, November 24th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. This hour, Ukrainians are doing whatever they can to stay warm without power, including illegal logging. I think that freezing temperatures are scarier than uh, forestry. (laughs) Later, will FTX Arena in Miami get a new name now that the cryptocurrency exchange it's named for has imploded? Also, the three and a half seconds that made U.S. soccer player Tim Weah a star, and our holiday movie preview, including a book that became a movie that became a musical that became a movie musical. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. It's a difficult Thanksgiving day in Chesapeake, Virginia. A Walmart supervisor shot and killed his co-workers before taking his own life. NPR's Jackie Northam reports the community is remembering the six people who were killed as other communities near and far also continue to face gun violence. Among the victims of Tuesday's shooting were Lorenzo Gamble, a custodian at Walmart, Brian Pendleton, 70-year-old Randy Blevins, Tanika Johnson, and Kelly Pyle, a 52-year-old grandmother. A sixth victim was not named because of his age. He was 16 years old. All of those killed were Walmart employees. Authorities are still trying to piece together what led the 31-year-old shooter to go on a rampage. He was armed with a handgun and had multiple ammunition magazines. He had been with Walmart for 12 years. This was the third mass shooting this month. Three students were killed at the University of Virginia, and last weekend, five people were killed at a gay club in Colorado Springs. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. And President Biden and the First Lady spoke to the owners of the Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub where the gunman killed five people and injured more than a dozen. The White House says the Bidens offered condolences and also vowed to once again push for an assault weapons ban. The president reiterated his support for the community to fight back against hate and gun violence. The alleged gunman, Anderson Aldrich, is being held without bail. Today marks nine months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And as NPR's Greg Myrie reports, many Ukrainians spent the day struggling to meet their basic needs due to more Russian missile strikes. In the capital, Kyiv, most residents woke up this morning without electricity or running water in their homes. As the day progressed, basic services were restored in Kyiv and many other cities around the country. Still, Russia's nationwide missile strike on Wednesday was one of the most damaging since it ramped up airstrikes on Ukraine's energy systems last month. Ukraine says it shot down 50 of the 70 missiles fired by Russia. But those that hit the mark caused widespread outages to the already compromised electricity grid. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Today, the lower house of the Russian parliament unanimously extended a law banning what it calls LGBTQ propaganda aimed at children. Human rights groups see it as discrimination. But the speaker of Russia's lower house of parliament, Vyacheslav Volodin, says the legislation banning certain advertising media and books would protect the country from what he called the darkness spread by the U.S. Uh, This is the best answer to Secretary of State Blinken, 
Do not impose alien values on us. You destroyed yours, and we'll see how it all ends. The bill now goes to the upper house. This is NPR News. If additional travel is in your plans, this coming week could be a good time to shop. And Pierre Scott Horsley reports the Tuesday after Thanksgiving is a peak day for travel discounts. Late November is typically a slow period for booking travel. Many people have already bought tickets for year-end holiday trips, and they're not yet thinking about 2023. That's where the discounts come in. According to the travel app Hopper, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving is one of the best days to find bargains on air travel, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Hopper says discounts offered on Travel Deal Tuesday outnumber those on Black Friday and Cyber Monday by a wide margin. Discounts would be welcome for many travelers this fall. The price of airline tickets has soared nearly 43% from a year ago. Hotel room rates are up about 6.5%, while the price of rental cars is actually down a bit. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Ford is recalling more than 600,000 SUVs because of a fire risk from a possible fuel leak. The recall involves 2020 to 2023 model year Bronco Sport and Escape vehicles. The automaker says the fuel injector could be cracked, which could cause a fire under the hood. 20 fires have been reported, including that three that ignited nearby structures, and four of which happened soon after the engine was turned off. Despite that, Ford isn't recommending owners not drive the vehicles, calling the chance of a fire rare. So far, there are four injury claims not involving burns and 43 legal claims over the problem. Ford also says it will extend warranties to cover cracked fuel injectors. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. While there is more Thanksgiving football in store, you can work off your holiday meal from the couch watching the Patriots take on the Vikings in Minnesota tonight at 8.20. The Pats go into the game in third place in the AFC East with a 6-4 and four record. Thanks for including 90.9 WBUR in your Thanksgiving weekend. When you want to check in or need a break from your busyness, we'll be here with the news and more. Listen anytime on the radio and anywhere on the WBUR app. We'll have mostly cloudy skies tonight with temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will be a gray day with a chance of rain. For most of it, we'll see a high around 52. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. The opioid settlement came out to $26 billion. That's what four major drug manufacturers and distributors agreed to pay earlier this year for their role in fueling the opioid overdose crisis. Now many states are getting that money for the first time. So how exactly should it be spent? Well, Kaiser Health News reporter Aneri Patani has been covering the story. Welcome. Thank you for having me. $26 billion is not small change. Uh, What are states supposed to do with all this money? The big idea is this money is to be used for anything that can help address the opioid epidemic. So treating addiction, prevention programs in schools, harm reduction efforts like syringe exchange programs. And states are starting to get their first payments from that big settlement this summer and continuing through this fall. But they'll continue getting payouts for the next 18 years. And each state is kind of taking its own approach to how it wants to spend that money. So a lot of people are excited that, you know, this windfall of of cash could make a difference. But there's also a lot of people who are concerned that the money may not go to places where it's most needed, which is what happened with the tobacco settlement money back in the 90s. Explain how that went down and what the fear is now. 
Yeah. So in that case, state governments got billions of dollars from suing cigarette companies, but they didn't actually use the money towards programs to stop smoking. Instead, they used it to fill budget gaps. And public health officials and advocates don't want to see that happen again. But there's reason to think that we're learning from that mistake. Uh, the opioid settlements this time around have stronger protections built in, like the fact that 85% of the settlement funds have to be used on things related to opioid addiction. And if states don't meet that threshold in the early years of the settlements, they could actually get penalized and get less money in the future years. Now, you said the specific way the money is used is up to states, but what about the millions of people who've been affected by opioids? Not only people struggling with addiction, but their families. Uh, do any of them get a say in how this money is used? So this is a big conversation right now, and the reality is it varies a lot by state. So in Ohio, for example, I spoke with a woman, her name's Jackie Lewis. Her son dealt with opioid addiction for 20 years, and he just died last month of an overdose. Jackie spent years trying to get him treatment and pay off his court fines, and now she's raising her seven-year-old granddaughter on Social Security payments. So she wants the settlement funds to go towards helping families like hers and to fund treatment centers that will treat anyone regardless of their ability to pay. But she hasn't been able to speak to the foundation in Ohio that's overseeing the settlement money, and a local advocacy group has actually sued because of that lack of transparency. Of course, that's just one of the states. Some of the others are, are doing better with taking public input. And for people who are interested in having a say, they can reach out to their state's attorney general's office, which negotiated the settlement, or even to city or county officials, because a lot of these funds are trickling down to the local levels. Bottom line, do the people you've spoken with think this money is going to make a real difference? Everyone's really hopeful, but I think right now it's hard to say. We're really at the early stages. States are just receiving their first payments. And what we see right now is that their plans differ pretty wildly. You know, in Rhode Island, they're planning to use money for a site where people can use drugs under medical supervision. Maine is planning to give money to special education programs in schools. In Louisiana, 20% of the settlement funds are going to sheriff's offices to use as they'd like. And while all of this is happening, we have to remember, more than 200 Americans are dying of drug overdoses each day. So advocates and health officials feel an urgency to use this money but they're also trying to be thoughtful so that their actions can make a difference over the next 18 years that the money comes. That's Anari Patani of Kaiser Health News, and you can find more of her reporting on the opioid settlement money at NPR.org. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Russia's attacks on Ukraine's energy and heating infrastructure have left millions of people wondering how they'll stay warm over the coming winter. NPR's Nathan Rott reports on efforts, legal and otherwise, to supply Ukrainians with firewood. In a light rain, among jumbled spent Russian artillery shells, a Ukrainian man saws away at a half-burnt tree, its top a fray of splintered wood. His co-worker Oleg beckons us over to look at rubble covering the forest floor. Oleg not being his real name because this logging isn't strictly legal. And because he's still nervous after being held and tortured, he says, by Russian soldiers when they occupied this northeast corner of Ukraine. So you can see that these are the boxes. Uh, they were full of shells. Then there was fire. And you can see the only metal pieces of uh, these wooden boxes are left. So you can see them everywhere. This was a Russian ammunition depot hidden in the woods outside of the town of Izum. It was hit by Ukrainian artillery strikes during their counteroffensive in mid-September. 
И таких лесов очень много в Изюме. Очень много. Woods like this in Изюм. Woods that are damaged, mined, littered with unexploded ordnance. Too unsafe for anyone working in an official capacity to deal with. So I understand you collect wood that you then bring to people in Изюм, yeah? Is there a big need for firewood? Of course, he says, I get a lot of requests. Because in some areas of this place, there's no electricity, he says, no natural gas. So this is the only way to get heat. Ukrainian officials acknowledge millions of people are in a difficult position because of Russia's concentrated attacks on the country's heating and electrical infrastructure. But its environment ministry, responsible for the country's forests, is urging people to not do this, not collect their own firewood, making it a crime punishable by fines. Ruslan Strelets is the country's environment minister. Because of the trenches, the explosions and fires, he says, one-third of Ukrainian woodland has been damaged by war. That figure, one-third of the country's forests, could not be verified. But it's what has environmental groups in the country concerned, too. Some have set up websites to report people illegally harvesting wood. Strelet says he doesn't anticipate it being a huge issue, though. I don't think there are a lot of cases like this, he says, and it shouldn't be needed, he adds, because of an effort by the state, an effort to supply people with wood through a government-run program. In the densely wooded Jatoma region, east of Kyiv, you get a small scale of that government effort. Among rail lines, a crane moves bundles of freshly cut logs, piling them two stories high. The whole area is huge. Dmitro Hatsuliak, the director of the state forestry enterprise, points at one grouping of piles. Do do That's about 200 uh, railway cars. 200 railway cars worth of firewood. In normal years, Ukraine makes roughly two and a half million cubic meters of firewood available for people to purchase. This year, Hatsuliak says, they've more than doubled it. So Russia's goal of trying to make everybody here really cold this winter ain't going to happen? They try to scare the residents and cause a lot of problems, Hatsuliak says, but there will be no problem with supplying people with firewood. In harder to reach parts of Ukraine, though, like Izum, where the sounds of artillery fire can still be heard, Oleg, the illegal logger, takes a break from loading firewood into the back of a bus. He's doubtful that state logged wood will make it here, he says, or that people will be able to afford it. That's why they're here, despite the risks. I ask if he's worried about being fined or stepping on a mine. I think that freezing temperatures are scarier than uh, forestry. <laughs> scarier than logging amidst explosives. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Izum, Ukraine. One place reeling from the collapse of cryptocurrency exchange company FTX is Miami. Last year, FTX signed a $130 million deal to put its name and logo on the Miami-Dade County sports arena. 
As NPR's Greg Allen reports, the county is now asking a federal bankruptcy judge to terminate the deal. Miami's NBA team, the Heat, play in FTX Arena. The company's logo still decorates the building and the team's jerseys. For months, an ad promoting the crypto company has run on all the local game broadcasts, featuring longtime Heat player Udonis Haslam. FTX has arrived in Trail 5. So I just got one question. You in Miami? Haslam is one of several athletes and celebrities named as defendants now in a class action lawsuit by investors, which holds them culpable for promoting the failed company. This week, Miami-Dade County, the arena's owner, filed a motion in federal bankruptcy court asking the judge to end the naming rights agreement. After FDX filed for bankruptcy, the judge issued a stay preventing any action against the company, including the termination of the sponsorship deal. Miami-Dade says continuing the agreement would cause a significant hardship and hurt efforts to find a new arena sponsor. FDX signed a 19-year deal with the county. It's already paid Miami-Dade almost $20 million. A $5.5 million payment is due January 1st. The sudden collapse of a company once valued at over $30 billion, while surprising, was not totally unexpected. At a conference last year, a skeptical interviewer asked FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried if the company had the long-term stability necessary to honor a nearly 20-year deal. It's been a pretty good year for us, and to the point where, frankly, we don't need to rely on the other 18 years to have the funds for this. A year and a half later, many of the company's assets have disappeared, and it owes investors some $8 billion. Miami was the first city to have an arena named for a crypto company. It's now hoping to be the first to sever ties with a crypto company following its collapse. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Once the turkey's eaten and the football is played, what's left to do? Well, plop on the couch and binge watch, of course. Consider This has some recommendations from a slice of the Star Wars universe. It's gritty, it's realistic, there's no Jedis, there's no magic. To a documentary on black exploitation films. For the full list, download our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Consider This. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker. Coming up on All Things Considered, NPR's Bob Mondello looks at film awards contenders and potential blockbusters in his holiday season movie preview. And what's behind an increase in electric bike fires. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. In business news, Watertown-based company Via Separations will receive nearly $10 million from the federal government. The money is part of a $100 million initiative to back clean energy innovation. The Department of Energy says the money will allow Via Separations to show how to better decarbonize the manufacturing of pulp and paper products. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. 
Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow the clouds will stick around and we'll have a chance of rain for most of the day. We'll see a high around 52 degrees. Saturday will be sunny and we'll have temps right around 50 or just below. Sunday, we should have sun to start the day, but then we'll have a chance of rain come back in the afternoon. Temperatures on Sunday will be in the upper 50s. Right now, it is 45 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. With Spielberg, Disney, and Wakanda Forever as incentives, audiences are finally returning to movie theaters this weekend. So how will the film industry keep the momentum going? Critic Bob Mondello is here to tell us in his holiday movie preview. Even if nothing else were opening between now and New Year's Eve, Hollywood would be pumped about the sequel to the biggest box office smash of all time. Avatar The Way of Water has been a warning for more than a decade. I hear her heartbeat. That appears to be Pandora, she hears, the planet itself. Just so close. And Sigourney Weaver's an entirely new character, a Navi teenager and part of the Blue Defenders led by former human Jake Scully. So what does her heartbeat sound like? Where the first Avatar marked big advances in film technology, director James Cameron says Pandora this time will be... Mighty. It had better be. This is the first of four planned sequels. Avatar Way of Water is expected to dominate the holidays at the box office, but it's hardly the season's only big film. The Civil War epic Emancipation is based on the true story of a man who became a potent symbol for the cruelty of slavery. They beat me. They whipped me. They break the bones in my body more times than I can count. This was cruelty made undeniable when photos of horrific whipping scars disfiguring his back were published in 1863. But they never, never break me. Will Smith stars his first role after an Oscar ceremony where he won Best Actor and slapped Chris Rock. Scandals of an earlier Hollywood era are the subject of a gargantuan comedy called Babylon. When I first moved to L.A., signs on all the doors said, no actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie are directed by La La Land's Damien Chazelle in a more than three-hour romp through Tinseltown's Roaring Twenties. If I had money, I would only spend it on things that were fun, not boring things like taxes, I'm just wanting for everyone to party forever. Comedies with a lighter footprint than three hours include A Man Called Otto, a remake of a Swedish cranky old man dramedy. They've cast the remake seriously against type. The cranky old man is played by Tom Hanks. You cannot use this road without a permit. Have a nice day, sir. No, no, no. no, no. Think maybe a new neighbor will soften him up? I brought you some food. Okay. Okay. Bye. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're not. 
every word you say is like a warm cuddle. Not a lot of cuddling in other winter comedies either. Four Samosas is about a South Asian American rapper determined to break up his former girlfriend's engagement. We're meant to be together. I got tired of waiting for you. That makes no sense. Life makes no sense. But still, we persist. And for R-rated Christmas cheer, there's Violent Night, in which a family's holiday celebrations are disrupted by a home invasion. All right, revelers, welcome to your worst Christmas ever. And the disruption gets disrupted by... Santa? The real one. Santa Claus is coming to town for some season's beatings. But comedy and even action aren't the rule this holiday season. Serious dramas, many with Oscar hopes, have been waiting out the pandemic, and they'll arrive in force as award season gets underway. Stories of parent-child conflict, specifically father and son in The Sun, which stars Hugh Jackman. What's going on? Are you on drugs? I don't know what's happening to me. Mother and daughter in The Eternal Daughter, in which Tilda Swinton plays both a middle-aged woman and her elderly mother. Mom, we're here. We're the only people staying here. And father and daughter in The Whale, with Brendan Fraser as a 600-pound man who is determined to reconnect with his estranged daughter. Do you forget the feeling? People are incapable of not caring. Other family stories include Noah Baumbach's decidedly weird look at a college professor and his brood coping with what seems to be an ongoing apocalypse. They don't look scared in the Crown Victoria. Yeah, they're laughing. These guys aren't laughing. Where? In the country square. What does it matter what they're doing in other cars? I want to know how scared I should be. Pretty scared, actually. And that also describes Jim Parsons' situation when his boyfriend falls ill in a film based on the memoir Spoiler Alert, the hero dies. Kid, what is going on? Are you all right? Calm down off the ledge, Mike. I'm seeing a doctor tomorrow. I'm afraid the news isn't good. I was always afraid Kit would break my heart, and eventually he did. He broke it open. Bottled up feelings, also an issue in another film for Olivia Coleman. We can't just give up. Stuck in a dead-end job at the Empire Movie Theater in the 1980s. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. She all but explodes when she goes off her meds and finally lets her feelings out in the Sam Mendes ode to cinema, Empire of Light. All these people. I'm the only one who knows the truth. Do you understand me? I'm the only one! Another film based on a Kurosawa classic that would likely have played at the Empire Theater is about a reserved 1950s office drone who's far too buttoned down for that sort of outburst. Life just crept up on me. One day preceding the next. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Williams. Not happy, not unhappy. A small wonder I didn't notice. The film's called Living, and it stars Bill Nighy. Mr. Williams, Dr. Orsina. Quiet. Even when Mr. Williams cuts loose in Living, he retains his reserve. In Sarah Polly's adaptation of the novel Women Talking, the women in a religious commune are also reserved because they've been instructed that it's not their place to express themselves until... We could not endure any more violence. Now they have a brief respite. Their abusers, all the community's men, are in jail, posting bond, and while they're away, the women discuss what should come next. We have been preyed upon like animals. Maybe we should respond like animals. How would you feel if in your entire life it never mattered what you thought? And we've liberated ourselves. 
we will have to ask ourselves who we are. Things aren't much better for women in foreign films, though their filmmakers also tend to find ways for them to assert themselves. In Korea's Broker, a young mom has to contend with conman baby brokers. And in Austria's Corsage, a 19th century empress is expected to be attractive, slender, and decorative. Happily, kid flicks to the rescue. In a corner of the Shrek universe, male vanity is on full display. I am puss in boots. In The Last Wish, our hero is down to the last of his nine lives. So this is where dignity goes to die. And a pint-sized schoolgirl who was last seen on Broadway is putting her foot down. No! That's not right! In Matilda, the musical. There are also films based a little more closely on real life, a lot more closely in the case of a full dozen December documentaries, on everything from climate crisis in To the End to a pair of literary lions in Turn Every Page, political writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb. <laughs> he does the work. I do the cleanup. Then we fight. And speaking of fighting, the holidays wouldn't be the holidays without a celebrity biopic. This year's is I Want to Dance with Somebody about the troubled life and majestic voice of singer Whitney Houston. We're building something here, so you just keep singing. Daddy, my money, I trusted you. You were meant to look out for me. A movie ticket to stuff every stocking from a dream factory sometimes known as Tinseltown. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, U.S. soccer's great start to the World Cup. The team is preparing for a highly anticipated match tomorrow against England. In the forecast, we'll have cloudy skies tonight. It'll be cold, but not too bitter, with a low around 38 degrees. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around, and we'll have a chance of rain for most of the day, with temps in the low 50s. Saturday, it looks like the high will approach 50 degrees under sunny skies. Then Sunday should start off sunny. Then we'll have a chance of rain in the afternoon. Temperatures Sunday will be in the upper 50s. Right now, it is 45 degrees in Boston at 530. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. I started covering poverty issues in the 80s when more than a quarter of American children were poor. And it seemed like a problem that American society just didn't know how to fix. And then one day I was looking at a graph and I saw something starting to change. I found that over the course of a generation, child poverty fell 59%. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The investigation is continuing into the mass shooting at a Walmart store in Chesapeake, Virginia, earlier this week. Seven people are dead, including the gunman. State Senator L. Louise Lucas represents the district that includes Chesapeake. She says lawmakers need to take additional steps to curb gun violence. I'd like to refer to it more as gun violence prevention 
gun violence prevention is the operative term for us because in order to get there, we have got to, we've got to get a grip on how we limit access to firearms to people who should not have them. Authorities are working to determine the motive behind the attack. Two people who were injured in the shooting remain hospitalized and are said to be in critical condition. Ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday, members of the group Parents of Murdered Children got together to remember their loved ones lost to violence. Sam Searles with member station WHYY spoke to some of the families who recently met in Philadelphia. Families shared turkey, ham, stuffing, and more Thanksgiving dishes with community groups, victim advocates, and others last Sunday. As a group of grievers with a common thread, so we consider ourselves family now. That's Jessica Whitfield, a board member of the Central Philadelphia chapter of POMC. Reverend Leroy West, a director of the chapter whose daughter was killed in 2016, said that the group is vital to healing. This is a way of people just coming together and saying, hey, I'm not by myself. I'm not alone. The Parents of Murdered Children was established in 1978 and has grown to more than 40 chapters across the U.S. For NPR News, I'm Sam Searles in Philadelphia. Stocks closed mixed across Asia today. Markets in Japan and Hong Kong posted gains. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. China is reporting a record single-day number of COVID-19 cases this week. More than 31,000 new infections were recorded in cities across China Wednesday and what has been the country's worst surge since the pandemic began. NPR's Emily Fang reports from Beijing. The daily numbers are even higher than the early days of Wuhan, the Chinese city where COVID-19 first appeared in humans. Just this month, China refined certain aspects of its otherwise strict zero-COVID policies. But that move was followed by a sharp rise in cases, and Beijing reported its first COVID deaths in six months this week. Now authorities are resorting to old methods to bring cases down nationwide, with mass testing, lockdowns, and forced quarantine of tens of thousands of people at once in government facilities. China's COVID numbers are still low, however, compared to other countries. The U.S. continues to average more than 40,000 new cases a day. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. Search and rescue operations continue in Indonesia after an earthquake struck the main island of Java this week. Emergency crews are focusing their efforts on a village that was devastated by a landslide. Rescuers are using life detectors to speed up the search for more than three dozen people who are missing in that area. At least 272 people were killed in the quake. This is NPR News in Washington. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Happy Thanksgiving. In sports, the Patriots will take on the Vikings in Minnesota tonight at 820. The Pats go into the game in third place in the AFC East, and they have a 6-4 and four record. Tonight will be mostly cloudy. We'll have temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow is looking gray, gloomy, and probably at least a bit wet for Black Friday. We'll have a high around 52 degrees. Saturday looks bright and sunny. We'll have temps right around 50 or just below. Sunday we'll have sun to start, then a chance of rain in the afternoon, possibly with some gusty winds, and we'll have temperatures in the upper 50s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 535. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. Anticipation is building for tomorrow's World Cup match between the U.S. and England, a legendary country in men's soccer. But many American fans are still looking back, replaying the opening match against Wales and the scintillating lone goal by the U.S. scored by forward Tim Weah. It made him an instant star, even though he may not be the most famous person in his own family. From Doha, Qatar, NPR's Tom Goldman reports. It happens so quickly, says Tim Weah. Ask him the generic, what do you remember most about the first half goal that staked the U.S. to a 1-0 lead? He'll give a fairly generic answer. The crowd going crazy and, you know, me with my hands out just running. It was, it was an amazing feeling. But ask him to bore in on the moment, and Weah will gladly pull apart the 5.3 seconds that started with teammate Christian Pulisic breaking into open space with the ball and ended with Weah flicking it between two defenders into the Wales net. A stylish play that did more than anything to announce the Americans' presence at this World Cup. Sitting in a courtyard today at the U.S. team's beachfront hotel, Weah recounted how Pulisic started his run, Weah to the the right and ahead of him angled toward the center of the field. So I cut in front of the defender, um, caught him sleeping a little bit. Polisic, Weah says, then put the ball on a platter. He threaded it between two defenders and led Weah perfectly. Christian did an amazing job of splitting the, the defense with his pass. And then, as Weah received the pass, a defender was hot on his tail, and it was decision time. With the Welsh goalkeeper charging toward him, Weah knew he had two options, flick the ball to the side of the keeper or turn and dribble in against him. He flicked, it worked, and Weah delivered joy to American soccer fans everywhere. I saw this video of this high school that was watching the game, and they went crazy, and you know, I just thought about how that used to be me in that same position. Among the thousands of U.S. fans going crazy at Doha's Ahmad bin Ali Stadium, two were especially notable, George and Clar Weah, Tim's parents. This moment is particularly meaningful for George Weah, who in his time personified soccer greatness. And George Weah and Chelsea take the lead. With his heyday in the 1990s, Weah, a native of Liberia, established himself as Africa's top player. In 1995, he won the prestigious Ballon d'Or, an annual trophy given to the world's best player. The one missing piece to his bulging soccer resume was a World Cup appearance. Tim Weah knows that makes his experience at 22 extra special. You know, it was his dream to play in a World Cup, bring his country here, and, you know, he didn't get to do that, but I think he's living the moment through me. And I'm going to do my best to make sure that, you know, he enjoys every moment of it. 
George Weah hasn't had to live through others much, not only a soccer legend. Since 2018, he's been president of Liberia, but here in Qatar, he's dad, which is what Tim's phone screen says when he calls to see if his father would answer a couple of our questions. President Weah, how exciting was it for you, all that you accomplished in your uh, football career and not getting to play uh, in a World Cup to see Tim do that? I'm very proud, I'm very happy. God has to play for everyone, you know. God's plan for me was not to play World Cup. But President George Weah does have a plan for his son's team to beat England tomorrow. It can happen. They have to make sure that the jersey is wet and is dirty. You know, that's how to get victory. A, a wet and dirty jersey. We will watch for that. I hand the phone back to Tim, who gets the one last bit of parental coaching himself. What a daddy your jersey. Yeah, <laughs> I will. <laughs> All right. I'll call you later. Okay, Tim. You'd think having a president slash soccer legend for a father might weigh down a 22-year-old with expectations. Tim Weah says his family name hasn't been a burden. I'm a very calm soul. Um, I've never let any, any of that get to me. My motto has always just been to play my game and do what I can to, to make my family proud. Family proud? Check. Country proud? After the Wales match? Big check. And tomorrow, a next potential moment for Wea and the U.S. team. England is favored, but Wea says the American players are a very ambitious group that knows what it's capable of, especially with wet and dirty jerseys and more goals. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Doha. Electric bikes are everywhere in big cities these days, bringing people to and from work, carrying food from restaurants to their customers. NPR's Matthew Sherman reports the number of fires caused by faulty or mishandled batteries is also on the rise. Carmen Tiborcio was already at work when she heard there was a fire at her building in the Bronx one August morning. When she got back, the fire was out, but the smell was overwhelming. Oh my God. It was awful because it's not something that you cook in and it burned down, no. It was the smell of toxic chemicals from an e-bike battery fire officials said exploded while being charged. A 27-year-old delivery worker died in the blades from smoke inhalation. He did not make it. He, you know, his lungs were very bad. It was a familiar scenario for Dan Flynn, the New York Fire Department's chief fire marshal. These bikes, when they fail, they fail like a blowtorch. We've seen incidents where they actually have so much power, they're actually blowing walls down in between rooms and apartments. So far this year, six people have died in such incidents in New York. The total number of fires is expected to top 200 by the end of December. That would be twice as many as last year's total. It's increasing exponentially. E-bike fires have been reported in other cities across the country and the world. Many, if not most, involve batteries used for food delivery that are either damaged or improperly charged. E-bike owners NPR interviewed in New York City say they do take precautions. Rafael Cardinales, who lives on the Lower East Side, makes sure he always uses the right charger. A lot of guys have four, five, six bikes in their apartment. They swap out chargers for different bikes when it doesn't belong to that bike. These bikes, they have specific chargers for them. You can't just use any charger, you know? Mushfakur Rahman paid $1,100 for two brand new batteries recently. Used refurbished batteries are far cheaper, but also riskier. As far as I know, that this brand uh, never 
get involved in, the, in this kind of incident. These days, instead of working for a single restaurant, most food couriers use apps like DoorDash or Uber Eats to connect with customers. And these workers often don't have any other place to store and recharge their e-bikes except in their apartments. City Council Member Gail Brewer hears about that a lot. The other residents call and say, oh goodness, Gail, there's a delivery bike in the elevator. And they're older. A lot of the people calling me and they freak out because they read about the Fires. Brewer has proposed legislation that would ban the sale of used batteries within city limits, even though she knows the price of new batteries is a stretch for many delivery workers. According to one study, they make just $12 an hour. And they do, you know, God's work, so to speak, because New Yorkers like to have food delivered. Brewer says the city has to come up with a way to help delivery workers afford trustworthy batteries so everyone stays safe. Matthew Sherman, NPR News, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are few Spanish-speaking artists that captivated Latin America in the 2000s, like Julieta Venegas. Now the Mexican singer-songwriter is back with her first studio album in seven years, called Tu Historia. Miguel Perez has this review. Julieta Venegas' voice, bright, earnest and relaxed was a touchstone of the Latin music scene of the aughts. Songs like Limon y Sal walked the fine line between Latin pop and alternative music, and Venegas also helped carve a path to success for similar acts that followed, like Natalia Lafourcade, Carla Morrison, and Jimena Sariñana, on her new album, Tu Historia, she sounds like an old friend that you haven't seen in a while. Altogether familiar, yet full of new stories to tell. Chilean musician Alex Almanter produced the record. You can hear his electronic pop and disco sensibilities on songs like En Tu Orilla. And while Venegas has played with 80 synths on past records, she's never sounded this primed for a strobe-lit dance floor. There's also plenty of what you might consider the artist's classic sound on Tu Historia. A multi-instrumentalist and sharp songwriter, Menegas is best known for navigating love and heartbreak through uncomplicated flourishes of guitar, piano, and her signature instrument, the accordion. But the songwriting is always at the heart of the music for Venegas. On Tu Historia, she sings about embracing your past and wearing your mistakes like a badge of honor. Her voice is tender and comforting, and the twang of the accordion, so emblematic of the music of northern Mexico, offers a new layer of interpretation. (laughs) 
Venegas was born in Long Beach, California, but she grew up on the other side of the border in Tijuana. And though her music has never really fit into any particular box, what binds it all together is an inexplicable Mexican spirit that transcends genre. And she grew up hearing her mom sing corridos from Tigres del Norte and lullabies from the Mexican children's character Cri Cri. Then she moved to Mexico City and joined the wave of rock en español. Venegas finds herself revisiting all these old memories on La Nostalgia. No te habías dado cuenta, la nostalgia sigue ahí, vive en ti. The artist sings of the longing she feels for Tijuana, a home she thought she'd left far in the past. But the nostalgia lingers, she sings. Let it live because it's a part of you. A motto that rings true throughout this record with all its new sounds and familiar ones too made possible by an artist that not only knows her history, but proudly embraces it. The album Tu Historia by Julieta Venegas is out now. Our reviewer Miguel Perez is a producer for World Cafe in Philadelphia. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, Mary Louise Kelly talks with novelist Ann Tyler about her novel French Braid and why she likes writing about families. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Coming to City Space Tuesday, December 6th, NPR education correspondent Anya Kamenetz discusses her new book, The Stolen Year, and how COVID upended education. Tickets are available at wbur.org events. Tonight we'll have mostly cloudy skies and we'll have temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, Black Friday is looking cloudy with a chance of rain for most of the day. We should see a high around 52 degrees. Saturday will be sunny. Temps will be right around 50 or just below. Then Sunday, it looks like we'll have sun to start the day, and then a chance of rain comes Sunday afternoon. Temperatures Sunday will be in the upper 50s. At this point, it's 45 degrees in Boston at 549. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, join us on a musical journey. From a crash course on sampling with a Boston Music Award-winning DJ to a Grammy nominee who invented a brand new instrument to a local jazz venue that's been a force for nearly 80 years. That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On this day when so many of us are spending time with relatives, we wanted to revisit a conversation I had earlier this year with the author Ann Tyler. Tyler has returned to family relationships in her work time and time again. In fact, the majority of her 24 books are about just that. And the majority of Ann Tyler's 24 books are set in Baltimore. 
Now, if we were talking about any other writer, you would be excused for wondering if they might be stuck in a rut. But Tyler's gift is that each story, each character is distinct, even as she builds on themes from one book to the next. The novel we spoke to Tyler about is her most recent, French Braid. It is set, you guessed it, in Baltimore, and it tracks one family, the Garretts, across decades and generations. And Tyler, welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you. I got to start by asking, are, are you stuck in a rut? Or what is it about writing about families and Baltimore families that keeps bringing you back there over and over in your work? Well, I am stuck in a rut. I mean, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I say every time I start a new book, I say, well, this is going to be different. And it generally is not. I think I think that what I love when I'm writing about families is that you get to see these people grating along together that can't very easily leave each other. And mm -hmm. they have to show their true colors, like, as I always say, like people on the desert island or in a burning building where their real selves come out. Um, sometimes people do split up, families do split up, but generally it's a matter of of endurance, which is, I think, the, the quality in human beings that interests me the most. Yeah. It, describe this family. The Garretts of Baltimore. The dad is Robin. The mom is Mercy. They've got three kids, two daughters and a son. Um, what do we need to know about this family? Well, at the beginning, all we know about them is that although they have no great cataclysmic disruptions and their relationships with each other, they just aren't connected anymore. Oh. So much so that at the beginning, somebody who sees her cousin in the train station is not exactly sure that he is her cousin. She just thinks he looks sort of familiar. And the question is, how did that happen? What leads families to get to this stage? Yeah. Well, speaking of not being connected. I don't think I'm giving too much away if I share that the mom, Mercy, moves out of the family house when the last kid goes to college, but she never divorces her husband, Robin. The two sisters, Alice and Lily, they, they call each other, they talk to each other, but they don't actually seem to like each other that much. Right. I wondered, in a way, you're showing us how they are not connected, but you're also maybe, am I right in thinking, you're showing us that, that love can be expressed um, through the things we choose not to say, through the places we choose not to be? I think you're putting it very well. That's exactly the case, I think. For instance, the mother who basically is separated from the father as time goes on and leads more and more her own life, she knows the thing he's been scared of all his life is divorce. And she's very careful never, ever, ever to mention the word divorce. And everything is just fine as far as the outside world knows, even as far as the two of them know. Yeah. But to your point that that's the thing he's always been scared of, when she, when she tells him she needs some space, she's going to be sleeping somewhere else, he says, I couldn't bear it if you left me. And she says, I'm not going to leave you ever, I promise. Um, does she keep that promise? Well, in a way, yes. In a way, no. I, I enjoyed writing about her. Sometimes I was so mad at her. Weirdly enough, I think the time I was maddest was just her general behavior toward a cat. The cat got me too. Can, can we just explain what happened with the cat? She inherits this cat. She inherits it. She doesn't want it, but she's being kind to somebody who desperately needs his cat taken care of. And um, 
as time goes on, the cat and she develop a relationship, but she always thinks he's going to go away finally. And when he doesn't, when it turns out, oh, no, this cat is just going to have to stay with you. Well, the first thing I did when I was writing this was that I thought, all right, that's going to be one situation in which she does sort of stick with an obligation to another being. And every way I wrote it, it just didn't work. And finally, I had to say, well, I think she's going to get rid of that cat. And I just, I was just heartbroken about it. (laughs) But there you go. She does promise the cat's owner, yes, I'll take care of it. Don't worry at all. And then the second he leaves, she drives it up to the animal yes. shelter and dumps it in the crate in the parking lot. Um, and I felt, I'm not surprised to hear that you were mad as, as heck at her because somehow that betrayal felt more infuriating than, than leaving the husband. Yes, I don't know why that is. It's odd. <laughs> May I say something that strikes me as I listen to you speak? You're talking about your characters as though they're real people um, that you can't control. <laughs> like, oh, you, I you, can't. <laughs> you could make Mercy the mom nicer. She's you invented yes. her. <laughs> I know. I, I'm just trying to make you not blame me for what she did with the cat. But no, I I've always felt when I begin a book, it's so artificial, and I am I am so clumsy, and it's a manufactured lie I'm telling. And usually about a chapter and a half into it, I'm sort of pushing these people around on the page. And it's a matter of dialogue sometimes, but I'll think of a sentence one says, and then it just seems very natural that the other one would say such and such. Although, in fact, I didn't invent that. It's just that the characters suddenly just take on their lives. And then I do feel as if, oh, I'm getting to know so-and-so. I had no idea that she had such and such in her life. Yeah. You said that A Spool of Blue Thread was going to be your last novel. And that, if I'm not mistaken, came out seven years ago. And you've this is your fourth that you've written since then. What changed? Oh, yes, yes. Well, I always feel I have to explain that I didn't mean that I was never going to write again. What I was thinking is I am going to just write this same novel forever. because I'm happiest when I'm in the middle of a book. So at the time that I was saying this, I was writing a spool of blue thread, and I thought, there's really no need for any more books from me, but I'm so happy writing this one that I will just endlessly revise it. I'll keep on going. I'll add generations, which is why, by the way, that book basically runs backwards. And what I didn't bargain on is that finally, I was just done. I I lost (laughs) interest in the, an earlier generation that didn't have a lot of depth to it. And then, of course, what am I going to do with the rest of my life but write another novel? Well, Ann Tyler, I hope that you continue writing the same novel over and over so that we can continue <laughs> reading it. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a very nice wish. I, I really like that one. <laughs> well, I really loved this book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Anne Tyler. She is the author, most recently, of French Braid. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. We'll have cloudy skies tonight. It'll be cold, but not too bitter, with a low around 38 degrees. Tomorrow, the clouds will stick around, and we'll have a chance of rain for most of the day, with temps in the low 50s. Saturday, it looks like the high will approach 50 degrees under sunny skies. Sunday should start off sunny, then we'll have a chance of rain. Temperatures Sunday will be in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For the first time, the UN has agreed to a fund that will compensate poor countries for climate change damage. We have to come together and do everything in the kitchen sink sort of approach, embrace ourselves for what is an incredibly difficult time to come. But there are questions that remain about how the fund might work. It's Thursday, November 24th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we look at how changes at Twitter will affect users around the world exercising free speech. And country music star Tanya Tucker reflects on working with her songwriting partner and friend, fellow artist Brandi Carlisle. She gets me. And I'm, I'm so thankful for her because uh, she's the only one that's really gotten me. Marketplace has all the business news coming up at 6.30. It's 6.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The city of Chesapeake, Virginia, is reeling on this Thanksgiving Day from the mass shooting earlier this week at a Walmart that left six people dead. William One has been following developments for The Washington Post. We talked to uh, the mother of Lorenzo Gamble. You know, he's 43 years old, Was a, has a long time been a janitor at this Walmart. Um, he was getting ready to make banana pudding for his family. His mom said um, they were going to have 16 family members total at their Thanksgiving dinner, and she was telling him, you know, you got to cook more. Speaking there to NPR's Morning Edition, the 31-year-old gunman killed himself before police arrived. There's no word on a motive. The head of the European Commission says a new package of sanctions against Moscow is on its way after the intensive attack on Ukraine this week. Terry Schultz reports the EU is also working on a deal to cap the price of natural gas to help limit the Kremlin's war chest. European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen calls Russia's shelling of Ukraine's civilian infrastructure a barbaric terrorist 
ballistic attack. She says Ukrainians face a cold winter cut off in many places from electricity and even water. Babies, their parents and grandparents are freezing in the dark. And I strongly condemn these barbaric attacks. They are war crimes. EU governments are negotiating the ninth round of sanctions against Moscow at full speed, von der Leyen says. We will not rest until Ukraine has prevailed over Putin and his unlawful and barbaric war. EU lawmakers on Wednesday approved a non-binding resolution that declared Russia a state sponsor of terrorism for its ongoing attacks on Ukrainian civilians. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. A new study finds the deadly 2021 heat wave in the Pacific Northwest was made possible by climate change. NPR's Rebecca Hersher has more. The heat wave in late June and early July 2021 killed more than 200 people and sent hundreds more to the hospital with heat-related illnesses. A new study by scientists in Germany and the U.S. finds that the heat wave would have been basically impossible as recently as the 1950s. But the Earth is heating up rapidly, causing more severe heat waves. The scientists found that if global warming continues on its current trajectory, heat waves like the one in 2021 could become commonplace in the Pacific Northwest, happening about once every 10 years. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. New Twitter CEO Elon Musk has made another decision based on an online poll, this time asking Twitter users whether the social media site should offer a general amnesty to suspended accounts as long as they haven't broken the law. 74% of the respondents said yes, and Musk says that amnesty will start next week. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Iran arrested a prominent former member of its national soccer team over his criticism of the government. This according to state-run media. Boria Ghafouri was reportedly arrested for insulting the national soccer team and propagandizing against the government after expressing sympathy for the family of a woman whose death in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police ignited the latest protests. It comes as authorities grapple with those nationwide protests which have cast a shadow over the team's participation in the World Cup, where it will face Wales tomorrow. On this Thanksgiving Day, some educators and activists are encouraging Americans to frame the holiday differently. New words are entering the lexion. NPR's Netta Ulibi has more. Words like thanksgiving and truthsgiving have spread through social media as a way to honor the experience of Native people. A TikTok creator named Kelsey Wallace, who's Yepic Eskimo, shouted out this week to friends at the group We Are Native, based in the Pacific Northwest. And they said they'll be going to Alcatraz to take Thanksgiving back, creating new traditions with Korean barbecue and pasta, going on a hike. The point is not to cancel Thanksgiving, these activists say, but to broaden its scope, to be mindful of myth-making and the realities of disenfranchisement still faced by Native people today. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Wall Street was closed today in honor of the Thanksgiving holiday. It opens for a shortened trading session tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. In sports, the 6-4 and four Patriots take on the Vikings in Minnesota tonight at 820. 
Looking at the forecast, tonight will be mostly cloudy with temps in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, Black Friday is looking cloudy with a chance of rain for most of the day. We'll see a high around 52. Saturday should be sunny with temps right around 50 degrees or just below that point. Sunday will have sun to start the day, then a chance of rain come afternoon. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Earlier this year, a third of Pakistan was underwater. Deadly floods killed some 1,700 people and affected more than 30 million. Climate change helped drive that devastation. Well, now in a historic first, a fund will help compensate countries for that sort of damage. Negotiators at the UN Climate Conference agreed in the final hours that the world's richest countries, which are most responsible for global warming, will pay into a pot of money to help poor countries deal with climate disasters. Pakistan led the bloc of developing countries known as the G77 at those negotiations. And Pakistan's foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How big a victory is this agreement for you? Uh, I think that this is, this is a big victory, not for any one individual or one country, but this is a big victory uh, for all of those who've suffered from the devastation of climate change. And it's something that uh, has been a long-standing demand to allow countries uh, who suffer exorbitantly as a result from climate change, but didn't necessarily uh, contribute as much to the position we find ourselves in, um, for them to have an opportunity. There's still a lot to be decided. Tell us what the most immediate questions are and what the timeline is to answer them. The questions are, uh, who's going to contribute to the fund? How are we going to come up with the international financial uh, mechanisms and who, who are we going to are we going to get it to those who need it the most? Our time frame is the next COP hosted uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, and I think that that's sort of a good target for everyone to achieve. In the past, countries have failed to keep similar promises. Are you worried that they won't follow through this time? So, as the chair of uh, G77 uh, plus China, obviously many many countries. Uh, are worried about our inability uh, in the past to live up to some of our commitments. And I think that is why it was so important to have the language on the fund. And I think it does sort of, it goes a long way to show that, uh, that people are committed to this. But ultimately, it's not binding, right? There's no consequences if developed countries don't follow through. You're kind of taking it on faith. Well, um, I think that the sort of the consequences is for our planet as an for all of us, not just for the global north, but also for the global south, not just for the developed world, uh, but also for the developing world. And being in the position of uh, chair of G77 uh, plus China, it was all the more important for us, having gone through this tragedy, that this had to get done. You've referred to G77 plus China, which is the group of developing nations. Uh, China is currently the world's largest emitter, although the UN still considers it a developing country, and China has opposed paying into the fund. Do you think they should contribute? We've got a commitment to establish uh, a fund uh, and financial arrangements to address loss and damage and a timeline attached to that for us to work out the details. I look forward to working with all our partners uh, within uh, G77 uh, and uh, the UAE, uh, which will be hosting 
uh, the next COP. And you're not uh, to going to ensure... express an opinion of whether or not China should pay into well, no, it. No, it's not about no, 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 no. It's not about it's not about not about who should or who should not pay into it. We all have to do our part to combat climate change. As far as China is concerned, uh, I recently came back from there, and they're leading the way as far as reforestation, green energy, etc. But we all have to work together to collectively uh, survive. Uh, and combat uh, these challenges without necessarily, you know, sort of finger wagging with one side or the other that, you know, you're doing too much, you're not doing enough. Let's imagine that this does get fully funded. There is still inevitably going to be more need than there will be money. So who do you think should get first priority? How should decisions be made about where the money is spent? Oh, that's a very, I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think that they'd be a difficult, uh, everybody faces uh, their own challenge. I don't think there's going to be a fund big enough that will cover every country. It's, it's not sort of a future problem it's now because it's not only Pakistan uh, that has been damaged, damaged just this year. In fact, Pakistan was first damaged by a historic uh, heat waves, forest fires and a massive drought and then followed by this, this, this flooding that you see. So a fund available can, you know, contribute in the way it will. But if I had the space to be able to go to the World Bank, to the IMF, uh, to maybe a climate bank, uh, to other institutions where I would take my own loans at reasonable rates, given the fact that I'm dealing with sort of a, a climate catastrophe, that would allow me access to the finances I need to get my own people back on their own feet uh, and be able to counter the various challenges that we face. Despite the fact that this loss and damage fund was established, negotiators at the meeting still could not agree to phase out fossil fuels. And so big picture, mm. is, isn't the world still on an unsustainable track? So the, the picture that the climate scientists are painting are extremely uh, devastating. Uh, and for us, that, that picture became in a reality, uh, became reality for us. This is something that has an urgency uh, for now. I wish that there was a technical option where we can all agree that we're going to turn off our fossil fuel addiction tomorrow. That's not possible. I think it's it's better that we achieved uh, a practical consensus about something uh, that we can do and can achieve, rather than agreeing to something that we were, would be unable to achieve as of now. Pakistan's Foreign Minister Balawal Bhutto Zardari, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. The protests in Iran right now, last year's farmer demonstrations in India, or the uprisings known as the Arab Spring, all relied on the exercise of free speech online, including on Twitter. Until recently, the company had a team dedicated to protecting the free speech and privacy rights of users around the world. But Elon Musk has now laid off Twitter's entire human rights team. So where does that leave users outside of the U.S. who've relied on Twitter to organize social and political movements? Alexandra Givens is president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So your organization serves on Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, which is an independent advisory group that engaged with Twitter on human rights. What do you think it means that the entire human rights team at Twitter is suddenly gone? It sends a devastating message about the priorities of Elon Musk and the new leadership going forward. That team was incredibly important for combating hateful speech, incitement to violence, manipulation in conflict zones. And the idea that that does not require staffing anymore, again, is a really dangerous precedent. Well, Elon Musk says it's not so much defunding as it is a shift to AI. Is this work that can be done by automation? No, and that's a really important misperception to try and address. Of course, AI plays a very important role in content moderation. The sheer volume means that people do need to rely on tools for it. 
But the idea that you can do that without very close human supervision is just a fallacy. Think of some of the examples that you can think of, right? So ethnic violence in Ethiopia, that was an area where the Twitter human rights team was very focused. When you look at some of the coded language involved in some of those incitement episodes, you know, there are things like ethnic slurs that if you do a literal translation to English, the word is musketeer. Right? How do you train a tool to know what those particular trigger words will be in a particular area? It's very context specific. Although it's and interesting that, that you give the example of languages that AI might not be familiar with, because in many cases, Twitter and other social media platforms were faulted for not having humans who spoke those languages. And so hate speech went unchecked. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we were one of the groups that would push back on this. So um, this isn't to say that life was always perfect on the platform before. But they needed to do more, not do less. You need humans that understand the context in these different settings and more resources devoted to this type of work, not less. Has Elon Musk talked about where he sees global Twitter usage and human rights in the priorities that he's setting for the company? I have not seen a thoughtful conversation about this at all. You know, he had this meeting that he vaunted a couple weeks ago with civil rights leaders in the United States. And at the time, it was covered as an effort to appease advertisers to say that he was going to respond to hate speech and harassment on the platform. That's a nice first step. Um, he hasn't really followed up with that since. But if you look at who was in the room for that conversation, hugely important organizations in the United States focused on civil rights. The NAACP was there, Color of Change, Anti-Defamation League. But it was a decidedly U.S. focus. And again, I think that sends a terrible message about how they are thinking about the order of priorities when we know there are so many other human rights concerns around the world. When you look at the last decade or so of Twitter's existence, there are these examples that we offered of Twitter being used as a platform for organizing and for democracy and for free speech and human rights. There are also a lot of examples of hate speech flourishing on Twitter. When you look at the balance, which do you think has more often been the case? I don't know if you can call it by percentage, but what I will say is that the company was trying. There were important moments where they took a stand to defend the rights of users to spread important messages online and to push back on instances of government repression or authoritarian efforts. One of the examples that I think is, is useful to point to is in India, where the government pressured Twitter significantly to block accounts that criticized the government in power. And the company pushed back and ultimately even filed a lawsuit to do so. Now we look at how that team is being staffed. Musk fired 90% of the 200 people in India at, at Twitter. They now have 12 people staffing Twitter in India. That's a country with over 1.3 billion people and over 100 languages being spoken. So even if it wasn't great before, the lack of resources now, I think, again, is devastating. There's a lot of speculation about whether Twitter will survive uh, if it were to disappear. Do you see an alternative platform that people around the world are likely to gravitate to for the kinds of organizing that we've been talking about? So we've seen already a big shift in users going over to Mastodon and what is sometimes called the Fediverse. These are different decentralized platforms that can intercommunicate the same way that I can text you no matter which cell phone company you're using. So I think there's an important glimmer of hope there. At the same time, even the people that run many of those services are saying they're overwhelmed by the sudden uptick. They have a lot of learning and growing to do to resource content moderation and all of the concerns that Twitter had in the past. Um, the demand for this isn't going to go away. The power of a centralized place where people can share information with a really wide audience is hugely important for democracy and for expression. That was Alexandra Givens, president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology. 
Twitter, which no longer has a communications department, has not responded to our request for comment, nor has an attorney for Elon Musk. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, and happy Thanksgiving. Coming up on All Things Considered, Bob Mondello looks at film award contenders and possible blockbusters in his preview of films coming out this holiday season. And electric bikes are getting more and more popular, but there's been an increase in e-bike fires. We'll look at what's behind it. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art BL2 lab space that frees up biotechs to focus on innovative treatments for difficult diseases. LabShares.com. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden spent part of their Thanksgiving delivering pies to firefighters on Nantucket. They're on the island celebrating the holiday. It's an annual tradition for the Bidens. The president also spoke by phone with some U.S. troops serving abroad. In business news, Amazon is spending $26 million for two properties in the central Massachusetts towns of Grafton and Westboro. Amazon hasn't said what the buildings will be used for. But according to the Worcester Business Journal, the purchases were made through the company's data services arm. Ahead at 6.30 on Marketplace, the iconic Eames chair is one of the latest American brands going green. Its designers are looking to transition the chair to post-industrial recycled plastic. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. Taking a look at the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. We'll have a low around 38 degrees. Tomorrow is looking gray, gloomy, and probably at least a bit wet. We'll have a high around 52. Saturday will be bright and sunny. Temps will be right around 50 or just below that. Sunday, sun to start, then a chance of rain in the afternoon with temperatures in the upper 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. All right, pull up a chair, get comfortable, because you're going to want to settle in and listen to these next two guests. I'm Tanya Denise Tucker. Uh, And what else would you want to know? You're a country music singer. I'm a singer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, meet the woman you just heard helping her out there. I'm Brandi Carlisle. I'm also a singer, songwriter, producer, and a good friend of... The great Tanya Mother Tucker. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's, now, that's an honor right there. Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle have 39 Grammy nominations, eight Grammy wins between them. But they had never met until they decided to make a record together and then a movie about making that record. The result is The Return of Tanya Tucker. They dropped by our New York studios recently to talk about it, including the moment in 2019 that Brandy first reached Tanya on the phone. Six it was times. the day I woke the up day. and I was nominated for all those Grammys for the first time in my life. Yeah. That was the day I met you. 
Brandy Carlisle might have just been nominated for six Grammys, but Tanya Tucker had never heard of her. I really didn't know. I never knew her music, so I'm an idiot. But my kids knew who she was. Okay. Mom, oh, my God, Brandy Carlisle? But anyway, so the phone rings. So I answered, and and uh, and uh, she just she just went to talking, and uh, I was sold. I was like, Miss Tucker, I have got a plan. Yeah, I was sold by the time I got done talking. Uh, I'm not sure if I was sold. No, I was sold. She was kind of blown away, you know, yeah. and we had been trying to talk her into coming out. She wasn't sure how serious we were. You know, her kids knew who I was, yeah. but not because I was famous, because I had been calling them. Ah. I had been circling the wagons, and I was saying, I really believe this is a moment of reckoning for country music. Here's the background to why a new Tanya Tucker album seemed like a moment of reckoning. Tanya dropped her first big hit 50 years ago, when she was 13 years old. That's Delta Dawn, her first hit from 1972. By the time she was 15, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Brandi Carlisle grew up listening to her. She draws a direct line between what Tanya was doing with her voice in the 1970s and what she, Brandi, does with hers today. I climbed across the mountain tops, swam all across the ocean I don't like compartmentalizing genre in terms of gender, but if you think about this, there, there's been a whole lane in sort of female-fronted country music that's like got this kind of like, like the chicks are like this, kind of, kind of sassy, kind of rebellious with a wide gate. They stand there, they hold their ground. You've got Miranda Lambert doing this. You've got several generations of women influenced by like a toughness that comes from like a rural sensibility that's different than your typical Southern belle. It's not feminine, it's something else. And I just think that Tanya is the architect of that um, in the same way that uh, Johnny Cash was the architect of the concept of his lament and the man in black and, and his stoicism and steadiness and music was indelible. And Tanya's is indelible too. We just so happen to be lucky enough that she's young. She was young when she started. She's young now. We have her here. Let's stop screwing around. No. Let's make sure we get out and see her play because she's she built us. Well, that's awfully nice of her to say so. But it was, I mean, unintentional. I was just trying to, you know, to, trying to get by and survive and, and do the only thing I knew how to do. Well, you were so young, you Sometimes know, when I you started. About that. And unfortunately, this is what we were talking about. It also means that all your peers, all your friends are so much older than you that yeah. you're having to say goodbye. That's what I was leading up to, and that's what our next single is about. Yeah. Oh, give me a preview. It's called Ready As I'm I'll Never Be. I'm singing it all the way over here. Now my writes songs in like one-liners and it's and they're amazing when she'll drop this line on you and it'll just blow your mind and we had just lost John Prine to COVID and then yes. Billy Joe Shaver passed yes. away. Yes, Billy Joe Shaver, that was tough. Yeah. And my heroes, you know, yeah. and people that are my friends went from being my heroes to being my friends 
and back to being heroes again. So, so I go up to have dinner with her in Nashville the night mm-hmm. Billy Joe Shaver died. And, yes. and we were walking up the stairs, and I said, they don't want to bring it up. But I said, Tan, Tanya, I'm, I'm sorry about Billy Joe. I know how much he loved him. And she goes, she's out, honey. She goes, that's the thing about, you know, they, they're all going to get their wings before I do, yeah. you know, God willing. And then she looks at me with that Tanya look, and she goes, ready as I'll never be. <laughs> I guess I'm ready. Ready as I'll never be. Oh my, what an amazing sentiment. How true is that? That because she's so much younger, that these icons are going to always go sooner, you know, and it's God's going to keep you here. But the difference between her and what I've had before is that, you know, an idea is just an idea until you put it into action. She takes it and she goes with it. And she, she don't she don't stop. So this brings me, I want to spend a little time on the song that's at the heart of the film and yes. of y'all's collaboration, Bring My Flowers Now. That starts something like this? Tell us how exactly. it started. The same way. Same thing. I had the chorus for a long time. Yeah. Long, long, long time. Uh, and I was leaving Nashville going to Austin for Christmas. But on the way, I always call Loretta when I go, cause I go right by where the turnoff is to her, her ranch. Loretta Lynn. Yeah. We talked, and I sang her that chorus for some reason. I don't know why I do things. But, and then I guess I sang it to you? Yeah, and you sang her that chorus, and she wanted to write it. And I, as soon as I heard you say it, you know, bring my flowers yeah. now while I'm living, because I don't want to need your love when I'm gone. Don't spend time, tears, or money on my old breathless body. On my old breathless body. If your heart is in them flowers, bring them home. Bring My Flowers Now won Best Country Song of the Year at the 2020 Grammys. It is Tanya's voice, Tanya's story. Brandy shared the Grammy with her as co-songwriter. I wrote it down for you so you could be your own, your own voice, but I know those are your feelings. So you wrote that song, you know, even if I held the pen. Well, you know, we all do things differently, but she gets me, and um, and I'm I'm so thankful for her uh, because uh, she's the only one that's really gotten me, and has done something about it, you know. And uh, uh, we talked about what she you talking about what she gets out of it. She ain't getting no money. I guarantee you, she's putting her in a hole. And I said, why not, Brandy? She goes, because I want people to know I'm serious. Yeah. It's true. Brandy Carlisle and Tanya Tucker. Elsewhere in the program, our conversation continues when we hear about that time Tanya came to stay with Brandy. She makes the best Wables Rancheros I've ever had. Oh, yeah, I made that for you. That, that was, was with awesome. the shrimp and stuff like that. I don't know what, it was just awesome. I'd wake up in the morning, she'd be standing there in her boxers cooking yeah. bacon with a fork. Yeah, those little muffins you made, those <laughs> are so great. I got my knee on the wheel and I'm feeling free With my hobnail on the gas just crossed over the county line, trying to make it up to Wild Rose Pass. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for including us in your Thanksgiving weekend. When you want to check in or need a break from your busyness, we'll be here with the news and more. 
Listen anytime on the radio and anywhere on the WBUR app. Happy Thanksgiving. The night ahead will be mostly cloudy. Temperatures will hang out in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, the clouds will stick around, and you might have rain joining you if you're heading out to shop or pick out a Christmas tree. We'll have temps tomorrow in the low 50s. Saturday, temperatures will approach 50 under sunny skies. Sunday, we'll have sun to start the day, then a chance of rain by the afternoon. It'll be a bit warmer with highs in the upper 50s. It's 6.30. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go.